Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be bringing you my conversation with Paige Smathers, who is a registered dietitian and nutritionist from Salt Lake City in Utah. So here Paige shares her involvement in the addiction recovery space and her development of the fundamental substance use disorders curriculum. So as you'll hear, Paige is a very smart cookie and she has actually developed this curriculum that we can pick up and take with us into different spaces. So I suggest you really check that out and all of her contact details are either available on the website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com and then click through to the podcast. All her contact details are there. So we'll also talk about the fundamental intersection between addictions and body image and eating disorders and disordered eating. I loved diving down into my favorite topic at the moment, which is fat phobia and weight bias within socially conscious groups, something we need to be really talking about a lot more at the moment. And Paige and I also speak about the importance of providing space for compassion and kindness, especially when we're teaching or working with other health professionals and our clients when, you know, we're all doing our best and it's not always easy to be shifting from a weight-centric into a weight-neutral and weight-inclusive paradigm. Um, Paige is also a specialist in mindfulness and do you know what we could have done a whole podcast on just on mindfulness but you can hear Paige on her own podcast which is called Nutrition Matters and there you'll hear her talking about uh, talking with incredible leaders in our field and uh, particularly on the subject of mindfulness so if you haven't heard Paige on her podcast I'd suggest you hop over there and give that a listen because it's well worthwhile and um, lots of wonderful information. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. More information is available on my own website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. We have a wonderful Facebook group, which is always full of fun and uh, feisty conversation, which is called, again, The Mindful Dietitian. You can find me on Instagram at, again, The Mindful Dietitian. Uh, it's not getting terribly creative, is it? But, you know, this is apparently what, you, what, you, what we're all doing in this space is keeping everything in the same name. So, hey, who am I to argue? All right. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Grab yourself a cup of tea, curl up. See you soon. Hey Paige and welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you. Oh, this is such an honor. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so more than welcome. Yes, I, I was just sharing you, with you that you've been on my hit list for quite a while. So it's just uh, wonderful to connect with you. Count me hit. <laughs> <laughs> Do big high fives from Australia right. all the way to the US. <laughs> Yes, I love it. So Paige, tell us a little bit about you, you know, what's going on in your life, um, what what kind of work do you do? Give us a bit of a summary. Okay, yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I live in the mountains and we have just the most fun things we get to do right, right outside of our door. So life outside of work is lots of hiking, lots of cooking and barbecuing and hanging out outside and gardening and stuff like that. Can you tell it's spring here? I'm like getting ready for, <laughs> for all those things. Um, and then <laughs> as far as work, I, I'm in private practice and I see clients individually. I also really over the years have found just the value in a lot of diversifying what I do. 
mm-hmm. because I find I love the individual work, but I also find that other things give me a lot of um, a lot of like exhilaration. It's just a lot of fun to kind of mix things up. So I teach a weekly class at a local drug and alcohol um, treatment center for substance use disorders. So I've been doing that for a few years and that's been so much fun to, to get involved with that community. I run a podcast called nutrition matters podcast and kind of, let's see, I think that's, I do a little bit of consulting here and there and some talks, but yeah, that's, that's about it. Yeah. Wow. So for you having kind of diverse workspaces keeps you energized. It does. It really, I've kind of learned that I have this limit with, with how many clients I can see in a day and even a week. And I'm, I'm sort of fine tuning this, but I've noticed that the weeks where I feel really energized and good, I I'm seeing a pattern of, Oh, that was the week that I went and did this talk. And I spent a little time working on this project. And I just, I think that that's just the way my, my brain works a little bit of a break from all that client stuff, which I love, don't get me wrong, but I think there's sort of limits to my energy with that. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I'm exactly the same. I, um, a lot of people are surprised to hear that I actually have a very small private practice. I probably only see five or six folks a week. Um, and then very similar to you kind of, you know, teaching and group work and consultancy and various, you know, supervision and bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm not sure about you, but for me, it shifted when I had kids and I found that my energy levels just were different. Um, uh, needless to say, I didn't have as much of it. Um, yeah. but I'm, that I'm could sure. be it, Fiona. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Who knew? I, right? I do. Those days I get home after seeing a bunch of clients all in one day, back to back, you know, barely enough time to shovel food into my mouth. Um, I'm kind of like in this space where I'm like, okay, no one touch me, no one talk to me. Mm. And as a mom, it's like your kids are going to climb all over you. And, you know, and I just, I didn't like that feeling. I'm like, okay, something needs to give here. I need mm-hmm. to switch things up. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to keep your skills sharp really by um, seeing individual clients is pretty important, really, especially when you're, you know, doing other group work or other consultancy, like just, just staying in touch with the human experience, I find really, really critical in terms of just, uh, just, just, yeah, staying in touch with what people are experiencing and staying real about it rather than, you know, um, imagining what people are experiencing. Right. Being in touch with real people is so important. And, you know, those clients that just get it and, and look, love it and are working so hard and are fun to kind of go down that journey with them or that's just so much fun. But there also are the ones that are really struggling. And, and, you know, I've learned for me, it's hard for me to not personalize it one way or the other. Like if someone's doing great, I kind of tend to be like, Oh, good job. Me. I said the right thing. Or I really was, I was such a good supportive dietitian for that person. But I've learned that that, that mentality goes goes wrong the other way when someone isn't doing well I tend to take that personally too and so I'm, I'm kind of working through my stuff with that you know <laughs> mm, oh my gosh you would be so not alone I recognize yeah. myself in that for sure and I'm sure everybody else does too my goodness yeah it's it's hard not I think it's just human but at the same yeah. time it's a really interesting thing to be aware of like oh that same thing that's making me feel so happy and energized is also the very thing that's kind of depleting me when things don't go well you know yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 
I see so much of that in my supervisees and I definitely recognize that uh, in myself and as you say when we're able to create awareness around it and and you know understand and acknowledge it for what it is and that is just a human experience that that we want we want we really deeply care for our clients and we want well for them um, and you know sometimes our own stuff gets entangled in there which yep again human <laughs> Human. Yep. We are human. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Paige, I hope you don't mind if I loop back a little because I'm really interested to hear more about the work that you do in addictions. Um, so do you mind telling us just a little bit more about that, how you came to, to do that work and then, you know, what, the, what that involves? Yeah. So this, this was one of those things that just sort of stars aligned and things fell into my lap and it's been a learning process ever since. Um, I don't have addiction in my personal history. I don't really even have much of it in, in family or, or good friends. And so this isn't really one of those things that as I was looking at what I'd want to do in private practice, it wasn't one of those things really even on my radar, but fun fact about Utah, it's actually, there's a lot of um, treatment centers here for substance use disorders and, and things along those lines. A lot of um, teenage um, wilderness programs, things like that. So it's actually kind of a hub for a lot of treatment centers. Mm -hmm. And so when I opened up my practice, I, uh, you know, spent a, a few months just sort, sort of seeing people individually. And one day I got a phone call from a treatment center and they said, Hey, we like what you do. We want to interview you to see if you might be a good fit for a weekly class that, that we want to implement here. And so I said, sure, I'm up for the challenge. And, um, yeah, I've been doing that for let's see how many years now I'm, I'm not totally sure off the top of my head maybe about three or four years of going there weekly kind of planned vacations around it even so it's Wednesday mornings for me I'm, I'm there every week pretty much and it's been such an incredible uh, learning process for me to to be involved with that community so um, it's evolved in terms of what I teach and how I teach it and the things I've learned throughout the years, but it's one of those topics within the field of nutrition and dietetics that I don't see or hear a lot of people talking about that I'm just kind of like, I want to megaphone it because it's such an important intersection with the work that we do. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I know that this is a particular passion area of yours and that you've um, you know, you've put the, put actually a wonderful curriculum together. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can, if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the essential, essential kind of missing elements of our learning, which perhaps we could all do to understand about working with folks who um, are, are dealing with addictions? Yeah, that's uh, such a great question. And for the curriculum, I actually, I was putting it together, the, Kind of, let me just take a few steps back here. So it, it kind of, I started to, I developed the, re, the curriculum and I dove into the research and kind of looked at what, you know, from the research perspective, what does it say about what interventions we should take from, about nutrition? And then what happened was I started doing it on that practical level and realized, okay, there's some things I need to tweak here, some adjustments I need to make. And then I also realized how much of, I think I'm just seeing this gigantic hole in even the research about this intersection of struggles with, with food and body image and eating and how that intersects with addiction. Mm -hmm. And so 
people found out that I was doing this work and a lot of dietitians were reaching out saying, Hey, can I, can I, can you share the curriculum with me? Can I buy it from you? And I was like, Oh, it's not really ready to go. Um, Cause I, you know, I want it to look good. I want it to be evidence-based and have all the stuff organized. And so I finally just got my booty in gear and, and put it all together. And um, so that, that's been like the last few months of my life has just been diving deep into this stuff uh, looking at it from a practical perspective, looking at it from a research perspective, looking at it from my own personal experience of working with these folks. And I just, like, it's actually really almost tragic that just the lack of research that we even have where I was like, okay, there, there's got to be, there's got to be studies about the, these intersections. Someone's got to be looking at this. And what I found is, you know, a lot of people, it's this sort of this like cross-disciplinary thing that I just, I don't think we're building this bridge quite yet. I'm hoping we will, but there's people, you know, psychologists doing addiction research, um, there's, you know, people in our field doing research and intervention, and best practice and evidence for eating disorders, but I just feel like we're not totally talking to each other. And my experience has been nine times out of 10, someone during our group will say, you know, I'd rather be thin and addicted than fat and sober. That is like the thing I hear over and over again. Mm. So in your experience what is the what is the intersection between kind of whether it's disordered eating or eating disorders poor body image and addictions so i really think it's it's very complicated and very individualized but if i had to sort of generalize I would, I would just say there's, there's a decent cohort of people that move through the, the treatment setting and really report no significant issues with body image. Their struggles with substances maybe started due to, you know, various other things that, that don't intersect with, with those elements of food and body image. But I don't, I don't have a number on this and I, I wish I did, but it is a significant percentage of people who come in and say, you know, I, I was bullied and teased in school and I developed an eating disorder. And then I learned that my eating disorder was a lot easier to keep up when I started using X, Y, and Z um, substance. And, and then, then they get sober and what happens is they gain weight, their family um, berates them for the weight gain or their loved ones, you know, tease them or say, wow, I thought you were getting healthy. And then they, it's a huge trigger to go back and, and to use. And so this intersects with this, with health at every size in such a really important way where the culture needs to change around what we view as healthy. Uh, we, we almost as a culture rather some, see someone who's thin and addicted to oh, cocaine than someone who, you know, it's just, it's just, oh, that's heartbreaking, really heartbreaking, you know? Yeah. I'm curious to understand Paige a little bit more about the um about the addictions world or the addictions space. Um because what I'm what I'm really coming to notice mostly through my supervisees who are working in different spaces to myself. So say for example, I've got a couple of supervisees who work in the disability space um and quite a few that work in more complex mental health spaces. And um, some, for example, that work in refugees or um, in the trans kind of community. And it seems as though 
there's a lot of fat phobia and weight bias in communities where they're very socially um, conscious, very, um, and really are deeply invested in the well-being of their clients and groups, but are kind of missing this pretty essential element um, rooted in 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 weight weight bias and fat phobia. So I, I'm I'm curious to to understand a little about what you observe in the addiction space about about that. That I mean that was so well said, and it's it's very much my experience in in the setting that I'm in as well. I will say I don't. I, I want to build this bridge. I want to have more of these conversations, but I only have, you know, one treatment center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and, but I am seeing people, people come into the treatment center from all over the United States. So uh, the, the things that are reported to me by the folks that I work with are really consistent across, you know, state lines across East coast, West coast, South, North, you know, it's, I would agree with your assessment that there is sort of this, this they'll, they'll report about treatment they've had in the past or, you know, treatment centers they've been to outpatient therapy and stuff that they've, they've been through to try to, to work through what's going on for them. A lot of them will report, you know, Oh, I was told that um, I was promised that I wouldn't gain weight or I'm so excited that you're here Paige, so that you can teach me how to get rid of this belly fat that I'm seeing now that I'm not using anymore. And, you know, there's a lot of, of sort of almost swimming upstream. I feel like I have to do as a dietitian in this space, sort of, sort of explaining what, what my role is and, and sometimes it's met with sort of a blank stare even by people in the treatment setting. They're kind of like, wait, what? And, and why does that matter? And it's like, Oh my gosh, how do you, but, but it's, it's such a cultural Mm. epidemic of like, Oh yeah, we're, we're just, um, yeah, we'll just promote eating disorders and, and, and tell people to stop using, (laughs) using substances. And there's just such a disconnect of like the fat phobia and the weight bias piece that plays a role in people relapsing and even developing the addiction in the first place. Yeah, that, that is, that's so true. So for those of us who are working, you know, across different spaces, do you have any, any, any tips or any, you know, even any suspicions about ways that we can really gently start to, um, or or not so gently if one wishes (laughs) um, (laughs) that we can, that we can start to maybe raise some awareness about how even in these really socially conscious, very well-meaning spaces that we're kind of promoting maybe disordered eating attitudes and behaviours and even eating disorders when actually that's really not, it's not our intention at all. So what, what, uh, do you have any thoughts about how we can kind of do this in a thoughtful way? With the clients or with the like clinical directors or other therapists, which I guess, I guess probably across the board really, because it's going to, your message will probably be different, right? If you're sitting one-on-one with me or in a group or, um, yeah, I'm curious to know, okay, I'll I'll be really specific. How would you, um, talk about this with somebody one-on-one and then, and then, Maybe if you don't mind speaking to, you know, how might we begin to have these conversations with our colleagues or on a, on a more broader level with a, a treatment centre with management or with, you know, other therapists? 
Yeah, that's a great question and something I feel like I can take a stab at, but I don't, I mean, this is such a hard thing for all of us in this space to kind of continually feel like you're explaining yourself because it's so countercultural and sometimes people just have to, you know, blink and look at you yes. blankly, you know, just like, <laughs> what, what are you saying? Um, so I personally, I mean, let me, let me talk about how I approach it. And maybe that's, that's helpful in how I yeah. deliver mess, like the message of this. So I personally have had to do a lot of work about like separating um, my ideas from my identity, you know? So I, I actively think that way and sometimes even remind myself, okay, I'm about to go into this meeting or I'm about to talk with this client who I know will be really resistant. Um, and I, and I just try to separate their reaction to what, to my ideas from their reaction to me as a person. Like mm. we might disagree about ideas, but we can still like have a conversation. And so I, I do that because a lot of my work does feel very, um, what's the word? Like just kind of like you're in the middle of like controversy and, and that's hard some, sometimes to occupy that space. So that's, that's how I approach it. Um, conversations that I have is I, I really like to think about, you know, what works for people and what, what's, what's going to help move people in the right direction. And where do we meet? Where do both of us maybe on these two different sides, where do we meet? What do we both care about in common? And I do that with my clients. I do that with, when I'm communicating messages to, you know, the treatment team, um, and hopefully on my podcast and stuff I do more broadly, I'm trying to kind of say, hey, we all care about the health of our clients. That's a, that's a really big deal to us. And the, the only thing that, you know, that I'd like to point out or just get you to think about is, you know, when we promote these messages, it actually leads to outcomes that, that aren't helpful. Or we actually might sort of make it easier for this person to relapse given their history and given, you know, their, their background and reasons for developing, you know, obviously it's complex for why you develop an addiction, but um, just sort of helping people understand that I have the same goal as you. I'm just approaching it from a behavioral perspective and I'm trying to get people to critically think because I see really good outcomes when we, when we focus on it this way. And luckily for me, the response to the way I teach about nutrition and health in the treatment setting, it's been really good. My, the clients there like it. They, they often at the end will say, wow, this is, I've never heard about it this way, or I was expecting this class to be so boring, but this was really helpful. This is such a, an important piece to look at. So I get a lot of good feedback. So I think ultimately if the, if your director or the treatment team feels like what you're doing is resonating, even if they might not understand exactly your approach, I think that that's also going to work in your favor. So developing that rapport, being approachable and relatable um, just in general, probably helps you be able to kind of continue to be there in that space. Yeah, I love that. So, so what you're saying, Paige, is that you know you're kind of doing the um, a little bit of stealth work, um, and a yeah. little bit of um, and a little bit of you know um, not only meeting people where they're at but really highlighting what you have in common as a starting point and then finding ways to maybe gently 
uh, gently challenge folks um, and remembering that that when we that every, look we're all so different aren't we you know there is a time and a place to get really annoyed or really angry or to just say right that's it you know um, you know and to make a point in a little bit more of a strident manner perhaps um, right. and then there are times uh, probably a lot more commonly like you're describing particularly when we're working within a team um, and where you know long-held beliefs are continuing to um, continuing to be you know rolled out in terms of maybe um, I don't know menus or um, or messaging within groups, weighing practices, <laughs> weighing practices, exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah. And remembering that a lot of therapists and dietitians, um, we have our own stuff as well. So it, you know, it would be remiss of us to you know not think that that finds its way into our practice space. Absolutely, that is totally my experience. Um, and there's there's just such a there's such there's sort of magical thinking that I see go on in this setting um, to speak to one of your previous questions, just this idea of like, oh, the dietitian's going to come in and just mm. teach them how to eat and it's going to drastically <laughs> improve their mental health, which will then make it so that they don't want to use anymore. And, they'll, and, you know, I get questions like, what foods should I eat so that I don't have cravings? And we have mm. to kind of work through some of that where it's like, well, that's, you know, it's not quite, doesn't quite work like that. So there's a lot of magical thinking about nutrition that I think we're kind of working against in, in a lot of ways, no matter which setting you find yourself in, whether it's, you know, individual counseling or um, this group setting or, or other areas, we have to kind of bring people down to earth and remind them like, there's really no one right way to do this. And there really aren't any easy answers and anyone who tells you there is it's probably just trying to get your money you know oh. I say that a lot actually <laughs> yeah 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 oh my god that's so true that's so true and it's I mean you, you bring up um, a really great example there around cravings for, for you know that was a that was a fantastic example because that kind of language has been very interspersed into pop culture and into mm -hmm. pop, pop media as well like words like cravings or even binging, you know, you binge on, for example, Netflix, which for me feels like, oh, wow, we've kind of lost the essence of what that experience actually feels like for people. Um, yeah, it's and true. It, and, it, and it becomes, you know, you know, it becomes something that is colloquialized and normative. And therefore, I don't know, I can't help but think that it really kind of mutes or waters down the distressing experience that can come with very strong cravings or urges, as we might say, um, and and the experience, for example, of of binge eating or binge behaviours of any description. So, so what? So you you're really describing this this lovely way of just gently um, and compassionately saying to people, okay, I understand where you've got these messages from. Can we? press pause for a sec and maybe dive down a little into what this experience actually is. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, what are your thoughts on, on how you kind of bridge that gap between, you know, what, what people hear and see and maybe is reiterated within the treatment community and then, 
how do you how do you kind of bring that back to you know honoring the person's experience mm, that's such a great question uh, and, you know, it tends to be different every single time I'm there. So that's another dynamic of treatment that's really interesting is people are constantly being admitted and discharged. So the dynamic is drastically different week to week. The things you're talking about have to kind of stand alone, um, but naturally things will kind of build on one another week to week. So it's a really challenging environment in that way, just because there's, you know, all it takes is for there to be one, um, let's say strong personality. Maybe that's a nice way to say it. Mm -hmm. One yep. strong personality in a group setting to really throw off the dynamic or make someone feel like it's not safe to, um, to participate or to, um, be a part of the discussion. So getting back to your question, like, how do you, how do you bridge this gap and meet people where they are? Um, Am I understanding the gist or am I getting off? I'm sorry. Sometimes I oh. ramble and I'm like, am I? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, um, that, that's perfect. I mean, I guess it's, um, I, I think this is, the reason I ask that is because I think that's something that we all struggle with, particularly as dietitians, where, um, where we have, we have, we may even have some strong beliefs in some ways. And then we know other people have strong beliefs, but maybe, their beliefs are not rooted in um, evidence-based practice. They're rooted in diet culture and yeah. phobia. And so I guess my question to distill it would be, you know, when we have some common, common, um, you know, some things in common, some beliefs in common and some, uh, we, you know, the way we want to care for each other and as humans, we have so much more in common than different. But our, I guess our beliefs are coming from different, systems or that we have uh, been able to see diet culture for what it is um, you know so how can, how can we kind of compassionately um, rather than trying to drag people over the line to our kind of viewpoint um, which can sometimes happen I guess in you know um, health at every size or non-diet spaces you know how can we kind of be just more thoughtful about the way in which we might introduce these ideas? Yeah, that's, uh, that's such a great question. So I, I like to think about it, like when you were just describing the evidence-based practice and the, the work that each of us have had to do to kind of unlearn diet culture, I just try to remind myself how many years that's taken me. And, mm -hmm. you know, honestly, a lot of it started even, um, before I was a dietitian. So, um, like for, for me to go into a group setting with a bunch of people who are, you know, their, their meds are being titrated and some of them are brand new to treatment and they're still in acute detox symptoms. And, you know, I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. there's so many dynamics in the treatment setting that I just have to say, you know, if they can just take one little thing like today in our class, I, I just really tried to emphasize the importance of allowing satisfaction and pleasure to be a part of the eating experience. And yeah, we talked about a bunch of other stuff during our hour and a half, but 
but that's what really seemed to resonate with people. And yeah, there's still a lot of like diet, diet talk and fat phobia sentiments being expressed. But I just kind of say, you know what, that's good enough. I'm glad if they walk away every single time with one little thing to kind of think about that's maybe challenging an old paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had people readmit and say, Paige, the classes that you provided really, really helped me during my recovery. And they were a big, a big help in being able to feed myself in a way that, that was nourishing and satisfying and good. And so you never, you never know if, if what you're saying is ultimately going to kind of resonate at the moment or later or come back to them when they're in a better place mentally. Um, so yeah, I think we're doing a lot of a lot more good than we often give ourselves credit for, especially in this setting. Because I'll tell you what, the the looks you get from people when, you, when you're doing these groups, it's not exactly like encouraging. You know, like people are <laughs> bored and falling asleep and sometimes really angry. And so I think just finding little things like, hey, have you ever? you ever had the experience where you tell yourself you can't eat sugar and then that's all you think about? What do you, what do you think that's about? And why, how might we be able to um, adjust that? And many times they, they come up with really great ideas about what this means to them and, and how they might be able to, to shift ever so slightly. Yeah. What a wonderful, what a wonderful approach to be able to use people's experience to be able to, um, you know, raise awareness of, you know, how we understand the brain, because I'm all, I guess I'm wondering whether folks that have had experiences with addictions see whether they have a tendency to kind of lump it all in one basket. So it's oh, like, they do. Yeah. Okay. Do they? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's another common, common thing that we're working through is the idea of like, well, now I'm just going to cross addict to food. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so that, I mean, I have, I have 10 lessons in the curriculum that I created and um, some of them are, you know, you can show up and give the lesson and everything's going to be fine and you'll walk away and be fine. Some of them, I know that I'm showing up and I'm really kind of gearing up emotionally for someone to yell at me, someone to like walk out and be really angry. Um, it brings up a lot of, a lot of emotions, especially when you're gently sort of trying to challenge some of the, the narrative of, of addiction, um, you know, and then you're, you're walking in and saying, all right, let's look at this food addiction model and let's talk about it. And there, a lot of times there's just a lot of um, bristling with, with that, just that's, just challenging something that's so um, emotional for them, especially at the time. Yeah. Another practical tool, Fiona, speaking of what you asked me before, how do you kind of gently encourage people to kind of think about these things? One of the things that I like to tell my folks in recovery is um, I'll tell them that, you know, I spent, I've spent years with them. I spent years sitting in a circle, um, listening to them, hearing their stories, seeing them cry, like being there with them. And it's, it's impacted me. It's changed me. And it's helped me um, challenge some of the, the assumptions that I've sort of been socialized to have about people who struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. And I, I explained that to them, that if anyone ever makes, makes a rude comment about someone who's struggling with that, I, I will often tell them like, 
okay, you don't, you don't know these people, like they're wonderful people. They are just like you and me. They are, they have kind hearts. They are hardworking. You know, I, I explained that I, I stand up for them. Um, and this often becomes really relevant when I'm telling them to challenge some of their assumptions about fat people where I'm saying, you know, like I, I also sit, um, sit with folks in larger bodies and I hear their stories and I cry with them and I hear about what they've been through in their lives and I'll defend them tooth and nail, just like I'll defend you because I know that the assumptions people make about fat people are not true and really mean and really harmful. And I know that that's, um, you know, it's, it's such a similar thing, but often when I, when I have conversations about challenging fat phobia, that will really bring up a lot for people. Yeah, that's, it's actually really interesting because what you're, what you're really highlighting there is really bringing up common humanity and that, yeah. when, and, and that when people feel judged and stigmatized, that that does not lead to better health outcomes or whether it's, you know, a mental health, behavioral health, physical health, and that it, we all feel bad. You know, when we feel criticized or when we feel yeah stigmatized or judged, we all feel bad and that that goes across the board. So I love that, you know, bringing compassion into the room and um, what a beautiful way to do that. That's really, what a great idea. It's great. It works better sometimes than others. But sure. <laughs> it sounds good, right? <laughs> it sounds good in theory. No, 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 completely. Yeah, no, no, completely understand. And I think that, you know, maybe I wonder if when you have those conversations, it. I guess I'm just wondering out loud, I wonder whether when folks are able to find a little bit of spaciousness for compassion for the experience of others, particularly in other bodies, to what they have, I wonder if um, that allows them to have more compassion for themselves and for their own experience and if their body changes through recovery for whatever reason, whether that's medication related or whether it's behavior related or whether it's just, just recovery related, you know, health right. and related, I wonder whether that allows a bit more compassion and acceptance for their own experience. I, I, I'm just wondering aloud, I guess. I hope so. I, mm. I, you know, it's, it's really honestly not a question of if it's, it will happen. Like their yeah. bodies will change. Yeah, and, and this is the thing it's because, you know, every story is different, but if I were to generalize, most people are not really eating before coming in, you know, they're just, they're so deep in their, in their addiction that they are maybe, you know, grabbing something from the gas station mm. once a day, maybe if they're lucky or going a few days without eating. And so a lot of them are, are so shocked, like, Oh, why am I, why is my body changing when I'm in recovery? And I, I that's one of the things that I just kind of pretty much say every time it's like, things will change. And, um, mm. it's not really a matter of if, but, but people don't like to hear that. People want me to come in and wave my wand and say, here's the magical way to eat, um, which is, you know, we all know that's not really, really going to work. Yeah, it, it, it's actually fascinating to think about change as a construct and to think that, you know, um, and to consider the ideas that as humans, we don't 
really like change unless it works in our favor <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> unless, it, unless it brings us more uh, of the quote-unquote good stuff whether that is pleasure or admiration or acceptance or confidence or happiness and of course when that's when we see that through a diet culture lens then it's like okay I'm I'm prepared to change my behaviors but only if it means that my body doesn't change or something yeah right. like, okay it makes total sense logically right. but I'll only do that if I can have a guarantee you know right so it's like bargaining in a way which you know mm -hmm. our bodies are not up for bargaining <laughs> they're not yeah exactly yeah so so is that is that something that is part of your either your curriculum or your or your teaching programs is discussing change like what what it is what it isn't what you can expect things like that yeah so we actually most of the the groups i try to start with with some group buy-in where we'll say okay why are we here why are we talking about um, nutrition and health and eating and body image in the setting why is it relevant and that usually actually comes up in the beginning of, of most of the groups. People say, well, when, when I, the last time I got sober, I um, gained a lot of weight and it was a big relapse or trigger relapse or trigger for relapse. Sorry. And, and so, you know, a lot of people will kind of highlight how important it is to do the work of, of talking about changing bodies and talking about, you know, change. And yeah, in general is such an important theme of, of, of such a huge transition um, of recovery. And so, yeah, I don't have like a particular lesson on change, although I think that it's, it does, it, it does come up as a theme, mm -hmm. you know, even when you're talking about, like I have a lesson on grocery shopping because another really important and interesting um, thing to highlight in this population is it's just such a wide range of, of people with wide ranges of backgrounds. Mm. So, you know, some people it's, it's sort of said in the addiction community that wherever you developed your addiction at whatever age that was, that's sort of when you, those are kind of like the life skills you tend to have developmentally or not, not developmentally, but um, in terms of like, you know, daily living skills. So yeah. if someone starts using at age 14 and now they're getting um, treatment and help at age 32, like grocery shopping as a basic life skill sometimes is really, you know, it's scary to ask for help at age 32 and mm -hmm. say, and to admit, like, I don't know how to even do this, you know? Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the intervention is just kind of basic, basic skills around food and eating and selecting, um, buying things at the store and figuring out how to navigate making those decisions and how to quiet that dieting voice that tells you shoulds and shouldn'ts and right and wrong. And, um, yeah, so I, I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh. but I, hopefully that kind of hits on what you asked. Oh yeah, definitely. We were talking about change and it sounds as if, yeah, um, exactly. it, it sounds as if, you know, rather than it being a conversation, which completely makes sense that it wouldn't be just one conversation. It feels like from what you're saying that it kind of, it weaves its way in, into a lot of conversations, into a lot of lessons and into discussions where, where folks under, come to understand what change is and then maybe what it feels like um, and you so beautifully 
then described, um, you know, some of the practical implications that can come with, you know, stage of development and um, how we can just remain really mindful of, um, of folks, I guess, I guess we might call it nutritional quality of life or something like that, you know, when like it comes to, yeah. yeah, when it comes to things like um, grocery shopping or, or cooking skills and um, just being able to care for ourselves through, uh, through, I, I guess, a nourishing lens or something. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so. I know one thing that we really share in common is our passion for mindfulness and um, and mindful yes. eating. Um, so, do you have do you have opportunities within within the particular within the addiction kind of uh, space or with with the folks that you work with at the treatment center? Do you do much kind of mindfulness or mindful eating work with them? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a whole lesson in the curriculum about mindfulness, and obviously, it's um, it's not. It's one of those things that is sort of a running theme throughout, and it's the framework of which you know I approach. You know, even lessons about grocery shopping, we we talk about that. So, um, yeah, it comes up throughout. But then, yeah, we have one where we really dive into some of the some of the really applicable teachings of mindfulness and how that can relate to us being able to connect um, to our bodies. And that's something that a lot of people who have struggled with addiction are not very good at, you know, if I'm just, if I'm just being blunt, like mm. and there's a, there's a real um, distrust of their body. There's a real distrust of um, cues because that's led them, you know, in a path that maybe they're not proud of or happy with. And so it's a lot of, of mindfulness based work throughout, but then, yeah, like one particular lesson where we just really dive into ideas of like suffering and impermanence and, um, you know, some of the other might like causes and conditions type of thing that, that can really help us develop critical thinking skills, connect to our bodies, um, be kind and gentle to ourselves. And then also to really know, you know, how to care for ourselves. Ultimately, that's, that's what recovery is to me. It's learning how to care for yourself. Yeah. Oh, what a, I love that. What a beautiful way to put it is it's, it, and for folk, would you say that, um, and of course it's going to vary enormously as it does in all human experiences, but for some of your clients and groups, is this for some of them, their first kind of opportunity to find a way to care for themselves? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many barriers to that. There's so many, um, whether it's income or skills or, um, sometimes there's just an insecure, like just an insecurity about like, I'm this old and I don't know this and I should know this. Oh. And so, you know, there's, mm. there's so many elements that come up. Um, the one really beautiful thing that I love about this setting is folks are often really experimenting with vulnerability and honesty. And sometimes it's kind of their, their first go at, okay, what, like, I'm just going to be open that, you know, I have an addiction and um, I don't know this, or I have this that's happened in my past. That's this traumatic experience. And so there's a lot of really interesting kind of sharing that goes on. That's really unique and really special in this setting, as opposed to, other settings where there's more social barriers up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So I find that really fun and that, that can be, um, that can be really interesting to kind of go off of what people are sharing and, 
and how that, that might relate to the topic at hand, or even if it doesn't, let's just, let's go there and let's talk about that. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. That's actually really amazing. It reminds me as you were talking about um, when you were talking about honesty, that it like a lot of a lot of vulnerabilities arise when we're being honest or truthful with ourselves and being truthful with others as well. And it it takes so much courage to go there because I you know, using different substances or using, including food, um, I feel like that sometimes keeps us from our truth. It's like, well, you know, I, the, the truth of my experience or the truth of my trauma or, or, you know, or various life experiences, which are, you know, deeply uncomfortable or that have affected us in really significant ways you know, Paige, for you to be able to provide a space where people are able to connect with truth and then to be able to develop the skills to, to like com form compassion and space around that is so generous and such an incredible, it's actually a skill really. Um, so yeah, that's, it's really interesting. It reminds me, um, forgive me for kind of segueing just a tiny bit. It reminds me that's great. of, um, one of the yoga, so there are in, in yoga, there are eight limbs of yoga and two of them are kind of are, are ethics or principles for, for living and they're called yamas and niyamas. You're, you're probably aware of, of these kind of ideas. Um, but one of the, um, one of the yamas and niyamas is called satya, um, S-A-T-Y-A. And it's by far and away my favorite. Um, and it's, and it means tr truthfulness. I mean, in if we were to describe it accurately, it's it's interpretation is non-lying actually. But if we were to just turn that around to a strength-based perspective, <laughs> um, then we would say that's truthfulness. And in yoga, um, one of the paths to um, know our true selves is through truth. And it's really interesting how a lot of the yoga philosophies I find so beautiful because we can, in, in being able to sit alongside or sit with the truth of our experience with compassion and with mindfulness and often with support, that we are able to then find I guess, freedom from, oh. from our pain and from our suffering. So when you were talking, I was like, oh, that's, that's Satya, that's, that's finding truth. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's the really fascinating thing that, that really connects to my personal life is the, the things I've learned in this, in this treatment setting. I've learned that in general, the common thread is we're, we're trying to avoid pain, which makes yes. sense. Like I get that, like that's not fun to feel pain, but it's so interesting how we we're trying to avoid pain. So we're actually, you know, using painkillers in many, yeah. in many instances and numbing and, um, and we can do that with, with substances. We can do that with food. We can do that with not eating food we, or exercise or whatever it might be. So what the way this really connects to me personally is it's really taught me just the importance of what you were just barely saying, this idea of just like sitting, sitting with it and, and feeling it. And I'm really, I'm committed to 
doing my best to educate myself um, and to learn better how to how to help my daughters learn how to to feel pain because I think it's such obviously it's such a part of the human experience but I think it's such a pitfall we often fall into when we're so not skilled in feeling pain that then we create more of it you know mm. yeah it's a bit of a it's very much a human experience I, I I wonder whether it's too much of a stress a stretch to kind of say it's a bit of a western human experience too is this kind of pain mm. avoidance wonder, yeah because um, I feel like it's a it's a very it's a very much generalization across humanity to say we all avoid pain because I think I, I observe I guess that in some cultures that it, it's not like that they're not con constantly trying to avoid pain but I so I kind of I'm led to think oh I wonder whether it's you know our modern Western um, well, and it's also how we're sold stuff too, right? So we're oh sold stuff through, oh, you shouldn't feel pain. I mean, that's so much of the messaging we get. So I can see what you're saying. Maybe it's, maybe it's not, not as universal and or, um, timeless as, as you might think. Maybe there's, we've developed such a, you know, lack of skill of feeling the way we feel due to, due to how we're marketed to. I mean, I, I blame a lot of our shit on marketing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you 100%. And what, and, and the marketing around what our human experience should feel like. So mm. we begin to trust, uh, you know, trust the external world. And, and of course, this is where food rules and all that bullshit comes into play is, you know, trusting our external world and what we see and what we hear and what we quote unquote should be feeling and the, and kind of lose touch with ourselves, lose touch with what we are actually feeling, which then kind of leads to suffering, which is Oh, totally. <sighs> yeah. I, I, this is, I mean, it's just a fascinating you know, this, this world of folks who are struggling with substance use disorder, like it's, it's a fascinating look at the human experience. And mm. I mean, they're like, we, we really aren't, even if we haven't, if we haven't struggled with addiction in our lives, um, that's great. And, and I'm so happy, but we all like, we're all the same, you know? Yeah. So, it's yeah. really, it's really interesting to me. We're all just trying to, we're all just trying to get by first and, and connect, you know, just, and just, be understood. And be understood. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah totally. Mm, yeah. Feel, um, uh, um, Rick Hansen. Oh, hang on a second. No, it's not Rick Hansen. It is, um, uh, neuroscience dude oh god what's his name um russ harris no no um who wrote the mindful therapist and oh mind, i have mind, that book and mindsight um oh the name i have i have the book in my office what dan siegel it? dan siegel got it yeah dan siegel okay i just thank yeah, you thank you brain <laughs> <laughs> thank you brain so dan siegel calls it feeling felt Mm -hmm. which I love I love that yeah so yeah, that, that's really cool yeah so that sense of oh you get me uh, not not as in you've experienced it but 
you get me, which I, I, I love. I think that's, I mean, as, as practitioners and especially as mindful practitioners, you know, coming with that sense of presence to, to feel people's, do you know what I mean? Like to, yeah, to adult, I guess. Yeah. And, and I, I think that one of the biggest gifts we can give each other, whether it's in the, you know, the therapy setting or just in our friends and family, for me personally, what I think is the biggest gift people give me is when I'm allowed to just be me. Um, And so, and I don't need to, I don't feel like I need to, you know, navigate, walk, you know, tread lightly around people. I can just be myself. I think that that's a, a huge gift that people give me. And so I try to offer that, you know, like you were saying, as someone who's a, a mindful dietitian, um, <laughs> trying to kind of just let people be their authentic, true, real selves um, with me. And I know that's like easier said than done with a, a lot of the barriers to that. But um, yeah, that, that's such a gift, feeling felt and being authentic. Yeah. Oh, which brings us right back around to where we kind of started, which is, um, you know, speaking about your your passion for for folks who are experiencing pain and who are experiencing suffering. And um, so, Paige, I I personally, um, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will be really, really interested to hear about where they can find your curriculum. Um, I am getting, I swear, I'm getting my hot little hands on that because it sounds amazing. So where can we find it? Okay. Thanks for, thanks for saying that, Fiona. You're so sweet. So my, I rebranded my business uh, just in the last few months. So some of you um, yeah, maybe you haven't gone to the new website. So it's positive-nutrition.com. And it's if you hover over services and click on professionals, um, you can kind of read about the curriculum there. It's the first one. It's the first uh, item on that web page. And then you can click on checkout curriculum. Or if you want to go just go straight there, it's positive-nutrition.com slash curriculum. The curriculum, like just a quick word about it, it's priced at kind of a high price, and here's why. It's a I see it as like an investment where you know you're you're paying to not have to do um, years of of trial and error and a yeah. lot of you know, diving into the research. So and it's it's sort of like an asset where you can then you know pitch services to treatment centers to be able to offer this on a weekly or every other week basis, which then brings in that kind of reliable monthly income. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I kind of, it's always tough as a person. I don't, you probably relate to this, Fiona, just to know, like, how do I price this? Like, mm-hmm. you know, where, anyway, I don't even know if there's <laughs> curriculums out there like it. So, so there's other things that are available that are at lower price points. There's a, there's a book that a little ebook that I wrote as the introduction to this curriculum. And that's available for, you know, purchase separately. If you just want to dive in and and learn about what it's like to be a dietitian in the setting. And then also I I recorded a webinar a couple weeks ago that's now available and um, available for continuing education credits, at least for the U S dietitians. That's on my website, positive-nutrition.com slash SUDs for substance use disorders. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And you know what? (sighs) If there's one thing that I can offer 
to, to you, Paige, and obviously <laughs> this extends to everybody listening. I think that, um, you know, when we do try to find different price points for things, I completely, completely understand the dilemmas around that. And it's like, well, you know, I don't want to price it too high in case people think X, Y, Z, or in case it's, you know, out of people's reach or, you know, whatever. But then I don't want to price it too low because of all the intellectual property. Hello. And... <laughs> You know, you think so about, much to think about. Yeah. Oh my God. You think about the hours of supervision you've done. You think about the money and the time and the energy you've spent going to conferences, going to um, professional development days, going to workshops, um, it, diving down into the research, as you said, um, you know, writing your ebook. You know, all that, all those hours really count. I, I mean, you would probably hate to think of how many hours that you have spent, um, which has all been put into that curriculum it would be i mean hundreds it would be hundreds of hours right oh yeah mm -hmm. easily yeah. easily easily i was gonna say thousands and i'm like oh maybe not thousands but you know hundreds <laughs> hundreds right um yeah. well 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 into the high hundreds um and yeah i just i guess i just want to say to you Paige, that you really um quote unquote should price yourself high to um you know, because you have done the work and it's worth it. It really is worth it. And the best news, like for me about this curriculum, like being able to offer this, it's as a private practice dietitian, your stuff kind of ebbs and flows, right? So some months you're busier, some months you're less busy. I love, I love being able to have this kind of reliable monthly income thing where it's like, okay, minimum, I will go there once a week and make, you know, I, I'm open to, to, or with sharing that, you know, I make, at least $800 a month doing this. So that's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a nice, it's a nice thing as a private practice dietitian, at least, oh. at least in my book, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. By the time you get a couple of cancellations and, um, you know, or, or you've, you know, you've, you've got a workshop on which coincides with your private practice day and then you need to either cancel or move people or you've got a sick child or whatever. I oh, mean, we, the things, yep. Ugh, all the things we, we all <laughs> know how, well, how precarious private practice can be. So, and yeah, I think it's, I think we, I think, you know, we could, we could step into that a little, a little more and kind of say, my work is worth it. And I know for 100% that I would, I support your mission and your message. 100% page, you just, you just, you give so, so much to this profession. Oh, thank such, you so much. In such a humble way. Um, you know, and I know it's hard for us to say, hey, I'm worth it. My work is worth it. This is awesome. Come buy my shit. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I get it's it. A, it's a funny thing. And you, I can't, and just on, along those same lines, I'd be interested to hear your experience. Like I have so many people like on a very regular basis asking me for stuff for free. And I've had to get like really hardcore and just be like, no, <laughs> you know, and yeah, so it's, it's a learning process and I'm definitely like a recovering people pleaser. I'm trying to just, just be, you know, be comfortable, not making everybody happy, but it's all, it's all a process. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. No, I hear you. I, he I hear you. Um, absolutely. I think, 
look, my experience is that I too have had to set some boundaries, and um, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. This is actually something that just came up yesterday. Is I've been asked to sit on a panel for a major Australian publication, um, and it's a panel for. Um, uh, kind of the over 50s kind of crowd about um, health and well-being and it's a it's a for-profit organization um, I would say that would be they would be very comfortably for-profit let's just put it that way it's at a big <laughs> a, a big fancy venue the other two speakers are very well known I am I am humbly I am not putting myself in that category they're public figures they're quite famous you would recognize it well maybe not in the US but Australians would recognize their names um, and and I know for a fact they would be charging for sure right and so um, in in the invitation it said you know you'll be a VIP guest and you know we'll link to your website and yada 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 so um, <laughs> do you know what I'm doing because it's really obvious that they're not gonna pay me you know I mean the wording oh, yeah. they haven't said it but it's, okay. it, it's all through the email um, mm -hmm. that they're, you know they haven't ex been explicit so so <laughs> I'm going to reply and say um, and say you know if you don't mind just letting me know um, who I can invoice like how I can who I can oh invoice. <laughs> yeah Arabia. that's awesome so so you know I'm kind of saying that I that I, I expect to be I expect to be paid because this is my this is my labor you're asking for um, four hours of my time where um, I do need to get my kids looked after um, and I, I incidentally don't have to cancel anything but that's beside the point um, they don't know that yeah that I know that yeah. listen to this podcast episode but I think we need to be a little bit more bold in saying that um, you know our time and energy and resources and knowledge and everything that we all invest is worth it now I draw the difference in that between for example if I'm asked to speak for a community organization or a yeah, yeah. or my local school um, I, I usually don't charge for that because Oh, because that's it's fine with me you know when when they're um, particularly their organizations that are working for disadvantaged communities I'm very very happy to give my time as I can but for for profit any organizations where where they're kind of a really little bit taking the piss a little bit it's like oh no 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 I'd I'd really like you to pay me and if yeah and if you don't want to pay me then sorry I can't do it that's my line. Good. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, I like the invoice dear. trick. Okay, so who should I invoice? That's a good. That's a good idea. Yeah, I've done that a couple of times, and it's been a bit awkward. But not for me. It hasn't been awkward. It's been awkward for them because they're like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, oh, you expect to get paid." Yeah. So there you go, folks. Every so for everybody listening, that's a little. Um, that's not, yeah, I call it the invoice trick. Like you said, it's kind of the invoice trick, but it's like it's setting boundaries and it's saying my what I have to offer matters it has value it doesn't mean that I think I'm perfect and I think I'm awesome actually it just means that I've done a lot of work which brings me to this place and that work has value so there you go absolutely and and you know Fiona another interesting aspect of this that relates to me too is we're both putting out a lot of free content mm -hmm. you know and so at some point um, it's like you've got to you got to kind of expect that people are going to um, 
you know, need to be paid. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's like a, it's an interesting thing where like, I always think about the, the people who I've listened to their podcasts and taken so much free content throughout the years. And, and I've, I've gone back and I've donated just because I'm like, you know, these, these people, I, they've really impacted my life and they'll never know me, but, but they deserve to get, you know, reimbursed for what they do. And I don't really ask, I mean, I ask for donations. I've gotten $10 here and there, but what I, you know, for me, it's like what, what means a lot to me is when people show support with stuff that I put myself out there for, like, like in-person workshops. I'm sure you relate to that. It's like, yes, (laughs) gotten something you, you sign up anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when, you know, when people do sign up for, you know, workshops or online training or like your curricula, curriculum, for example, that is a way, a way that we can actually show support and financially invest in, in other people as well. So we're financially investing in you and ourselves. Right, right. Which, um, like I, I get the dilemma. I really do. As a person with finite income and finite time, I, like I get it. There are some courses that I would love to take that are they're way beyond my price point and I literally can't afford it um and there are others there are others that are that I can afford that I have to think really carefully you know I've made some I'm sure you know you have too made some errors in the past with investing um you know a fair bit of time energy and money in courses that were not um, awesome. Um, oh, or a good fit. <laughs> not a good fit. There you go. Thank you so much. Yeah. They were not a great fit. Um, so being thoughtful, um, is really great. So the fact that you knew you got your ebook and you've got, um, some webinars just gives people a, a, a taste for your presentation style, sure. yeah. um, and gives people reassurance that they're, you know, spending, spending their time, energy and resources in, um, in a good place. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of saying it. Ah, <sighs> What a great way to finish up. I kind of haven't had this conversation with anybody before. So that's so oh, good. I hope that, that was really helpful cool. for people. Yeah. I think we all think about it. People who uh-huh. are offering products and services, the price idea is just a tricky, it's a very tricky thing. So. Yeah, very much so. Particularly when, you know, we deeply care, but also we have a business as well. <laughs> right. Like, you know, we care and and this is my work too. <laughs> exactly. Oh dear. Um, Paige, what a pleasure it has been speaking. Oh, with you. thank you so much for having me. This has mm. been a blast. I've been that's dying to connect fun. with you. So I'm glad we got to. Oh, that's so great. So apart from your uh, major website, uh, sorry, your primary website, which you mentioned before, um, I know you're on social media as well. Um, and you um, post some just wonderful things on social media and very generously share a lot of um, other people's things too. So um, um, what, are, what are your social media handles? So I focus my time and effort on Facebook and Instagram um, Twitter is not my jam. I'm like scared of it. I just see, I just see people talking about it. Like that is not my gig. Um, so anyway, it's Paige Smathers RD, um, in both of those places. Uh, Facebook, it's like positive nutrition with Paige Smathers. So I most, I'm mostly hang out on Instagram. I like it there. Yeah. I've really come to really like Instagram. Um, took me a little while to warm up to it I think but um yeah it's it's a great space especially collegially it's a it's a wonderful space yeah it's a really good way to connect with 
other like-minded people and to reach, to actually reach people. Facebook is, is kind of harder sometimes with that. Yeah, I agree. All the logarithms, I, I find them confusing and a bit frustrating to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I can't keep up with it. I, I know. Have to just try to keep up with that, you know? I know. Do you ever have those situations where you write what you think is a really kind of on point post and it doesn't go anywhere? <laughs> Yeah, and then sometimes you throw something out there and people are like, ah, this is the best thing ever. So. I know, I know. I, it's like, you know, a random thought in the shower. Yeah, oh, I am all about shower thoughts. That's yes. what I thinking. Totally. Yes. You know, uh, Fiona Willer, who is mm -hmm. the, the Hayes academic dietitian and beautiful friend of mine, she says she, she gets all her best PhD thoughts in the shower. So, <laughs> I bet it's where your mind is just clear and things can come to you, you know, and, and nobody's bothering you. <laughs> oh yes, that's true. Especially as a parent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paige, again, it's like such a pleasure. Um, it's been so awesome to, uh, to, to kind of meet you, I guess, you know, you and I haven't actually met, which I feel like is a massive tragedy, to be honest. I feel the same ah, way. We've got yeah. to remedy this. <laughs> We've got to remedy this ASAP. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. This has been an amazing conversation and I really look forward to connecting with you again. Okay. Me too. And likewise, thank you so much, Fiona. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Mm -hmm.